Well, we are inundated with multiple sounds at any one moment during the day. For example, a typical weekday, maybe for many of you, may sound something like this at your house. The television is on, uh, the, the news is on in one room, uh, your getting ready for the day playlist is on in another room, um, the birds are chirping when it's not 105 degrees and you can have your windows open, the, the windows, uh, I mean the, the birds are chirping, uh, you've got a dog in the house that's barking, um, the coffee pot's perking. One spouse is going over the extracurricular drop-off and pick-up uh, schedule for the, for the afternoon, and the children are asking for breakfast, right? It's all going on at one time. And then in the midst of it all, and even despite it all, you are somehow still able to hear the little ding of your notification on your phone. You know I'm telling the truth. It's called selective hearing. Uh, It has nothing to do with your hearing acuity or sensitivity. It has everything to do with what we want to hear and what we choose to hear. You see, the, the brain handles sensory information automatically, and so when we hear that sensory information through sounds... Um, Our brain processes it, and it filters it, and it enhances it, and then it prioritizes it. In other words, selective hearing helps your brain recognize or notice the information that you believe is most important. Now, I know we usually refer to selective hearing as something many people suffer from, uh, specifically men, uh, and anyone and everyone under the age of 18, but it is actually a skill, and it's something that's beneficial and can be beneficial um, and used for our good. For example, moms practice selective hearing when they can they can hear their babies cry and wake up immediately and yet sleep through other, even louder sounds than that. Parents can pick up on the cry of their own child, even though multiple children may be crying, to the point that they believe their child is the loudest in the room, even when they're not. Another example would would be when, we're, when you're in a, a very busy restaurant, right, and multiple conversations are going on around you, and dishes are clanging, and the music is on, and you're able to turn, tune all of that out and tune in to the most important person in the room to hear them talking, and it's the person that's right there in front of you at the table. Well, it's not going to surprise you to know that I believe that this selective hearing, this same principle, can either help us or hinder us when it comes to hearing and doing the Word of God. 
And that's because we're inundated every moment of every day with various voices and noises that compete against God's Word. And we can either filter out the Word and enhance and prioritize the world and Satan in our own flesh, the voices of the world and Satan in our own flesh, or we can filter out the voices and noises of the world and of Satan in our own flesh and enhance and prioritize God's Word. And James encourages us to do the latter, of course. He encourages us to do the latter as he calls us to humbly hear the Word and to actively do the Word. And that's our outline this evening from James chapter 1, 19 to 17 that you're going to find in the normal place in your bulletin. Children, you're going to find the normal or your words in the normal place as well. The words are hear or hearing or hearers, do, doing or doers, law, gospel, mirror, forget, and Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go any further. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? Grant us all spiritual ears to hear, that we might appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows, convict us and challenge us where need be, and then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel this evening. Father, I'm in need of you because I am weak and needy, so I ask for your support and your strength and the filling of your spirit. I ask that you would grant me grace that I might do something good for you and for your church this evening. Allow me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and with grace. It's for the sake of Christ and his church that I pray these things. Amen. All right, quick recap. For those of you that weren't with us, and even if you were, in verses 2 to 18 last week, we covered, uh, we saw that James introduced his letter by addressing the circumstances that his readers were currently facing. Uh, His fellow Jewish Christians were in the midst of um, significant persecution to the point that they had been dispersed. Uh, They had lost their job throughout Palestine and beyond. They had lost their jobs. Uh, They had lost their their livelihoods, their uh, homes, uh, even their families. They were under this continual threat of physical harm as well as persecution. And this threat wasn't just coming from Rome. This threat was coming from fellow Jews who had not uh, professed faith in Christ. And so it was... It was going on all around them. So the reality was for them, uh, for those being persecuted, there was no such thing as a safe place. They had no safe places as is so common today. They they couldn't hide or they they, they couldn't go somewhere where they were free from bias and and criticism and conflict. And they couldn't go somewhere where they they, they weren't going to face Uh, threatening ideas or conversations or actions. They were in in the midst of their trials and they weren't going to escape them. 
They weren't going to uh, go away. And James said they had to endure. But he also said that they could endure, and in fact endure in such a way that they could consider it all joy. But to do that, they had to change their perspectives. And so he went on to say that a way to do that, a change in the perspective, would include that God was not using their trials to tempt them in any way to sin. He wasn't even doing it to destroy their faith. He was actually doing just the opposite. They were, he, he was using the trials that they were in to strengthen and encourage their faith. He wanted them to feel this deep and steady trust in God regardless of their circumstances. He wanted their, their faith to be maintained and increased. He wanted them to rest in the midst of those things to the point that it was well with his soul or their souls despite their circumstances. And he said for that to happen, they needed to ask God and they needed to ask him specifically for wisdom. Without, and that asking had to be done without, without doubt and with faith. And he said they could count on that wisdom, right? Their faith was in a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And so they could do that without doubt because they could be sure that he was the giver of all good and perfect gifts. And so wisdom would be one of those gifts. And so they could trust in the fact that their trials would, in fact, be purposeful, and that God would give them the wisdom they needed to endure and to count them all joy. Well, in verses 19 to 27 of our, uh, our text tonight, he continues, he, he builds upon this exhortation to endure trials and to consider it all joy and to pray for wisdom with an exhortation to humbly hear and actively do the word. And let's look first at the humble hearing in verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, some commentators, much smarter than I am, believe that these verses actually focus on a completely new topic. And so they're just, there's this break and transition between these thoughts that seem to be somewhat similar, and he just randomly sticks these verses here, and they don't try to integrate them into the whole. They're standalone, in their minds, they're standalone advice that is to be applied, and is good advice that's to be applied in a much more general way. As a matter of fact, we often have heard, we've probably quoted and, and more than likely often heard verse 19 quoted in the same way that we hear certain Proverbs quoted um, when encouraging people to exhibit wisdom by guarding their words or uh, to keep their anger in check. And we all need that advice. We need to hear that encouragement particularly in this time, in our culture, in which everyone seems quick to anger and quick to speak and slow to hear. 
We need good listeners. We need to be good listeners in our culture today. And it's not that we should never speak. It's just that we ought to speak less. We would do ourselves and those around us well if we spoke less. And we need to keep in mind that we speak more and listen less when we're angry. And it's not that we should never be angry because there are things for which we should be angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. The problem is that our anger tends to be more unrighteous than righteous because we have a tendency to be more selfish than selfless. And therefore, our anger does, doesn't please God, nor does, nor does our anger lead to actions that please God. We tend to allow our emotions to get the best of us, and we speak, and then we regret the things that we've said. And that's why Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, quotes Psalm 4-4 and tells us to be angry yet without sin. But all that said, while all that is good advice, I, I, think this, I think these words can still be integrated into this chapter, integrated into the whole, and they, and they don't just need to be standalone. And here's, here's what I mean. Remember, James has just said that we are to, when it comes to trials, that Christians are to ask and pray for wisdom and that God will give us that wisdom. And so I think it's very possible that what James is doing is exhorting them and exhorting us, his original readers and us, to be quick to listen to that wisdom. He could be exhorting them and us to use our ability to selectively hear, to tune out the wisdom of the world and tune into the wisdom of God. He's also just said that our trials can be both a means to test our faith as well as a, a means of temptation to sin. So what he could be doing is exhorting them and us to be slow to speak when it comes to interpreting our circumstances and slow to anger when it comes to responding to God in the midst of our circumstances. Because when Christians, remember, when Christians say we're tempted by God, or when we get angry at God, we're impugning His character. We're impugning His character and His motives which is obviously not pleasing to him, because it's not only contrary to who he is, it's contrary to the attitudes and actions and desires that he expects from those who are his. And in verse 21, what he, what he then does is he tells us what we need to do to help us be those who are slow uh, uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hear. And he says this, put away 
all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The language describes the stripping off of old, grimy, mud-stained clothes. So he's instructing, he's instructing believers to actively strip off our old lifestyles of sin that are reprehensibly offensive to our God, to a holy God, because sin morally defiles us. It taints our character with evil, and we're to get them off. He says believers are... We're to commit to new lifestyles, right? We're, we're, to, we're to change our clothes, right? Paul speaks of putting on Christ. Right? So it's a, it's a putting off and a putting on. And we're to, to battle with that, with that new set of clothes. We're to, we're to commit our, ourselves to new lifestyles of holiness, which requires a battle, which requires an ongoing battle that needs to be waged because sin takes many different forms and sin tends to be relentless. You, you do away with one and another rears its ugly head and so there's this constant battle of back and forth. We're battling the sin that remains within us. That's why our Chapter 13 of our confession calls it this continual and irreconcilable war in which the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. But listen to what it also says. It says, in this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength, From the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints do, in fact, grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's good news. That's good news in the midst of an ongoing battle that victory is in sight. But it's a war that must be waged. Secondly, he tells them to, and us, to receive with meekness. It speaks of there is the same which is able to save your souls. The implanted word that he speaks of there is the same word of truth that he spoke of last week when we saw in verse 18 that brought forth spiritual life. So it's the gospel specifically and the scriptures uh, more generally. And he says that the word that's been implanted into us that has given us life, right? it needs to be listened to humbly, right? listened to and received humbly. In other words, we're to listen and to receive the Word as the spiritually bankrupt paupers that we are, desperately in need and reliant upon what the Lord and what the Lord only can provide. We're to hear and receive it with open hands. We're to hear it and receive it with grateful hearts so that it will continue to permeate our hearts and our minds and our lives. We're to humbly accept and and demonstrate that we have heard and accepted the Word as authoritative and that we submit to that authority. It's really, 
James's way of telling his readers and telling us that the gracious covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 that God would write the law of write the law on the hearts of his people has been fulfilled. It's been done. God has performed a spiritual or a, a spiritual and supernatural work of the spirit within the hearts of his people so that they can do what would otherwise be unable to be done by them. It enables us to respond to the Word. And He's telling us, and He's telling them, and He's telling us that the Word is necessary for life and for growth and godliness. In the word of Douglas Moo, it it reminds us that the Word that has saved us cannot be dispensed with after conversion. God plants it within His people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer, a guiding and commanding presence within. And over time, James says, it saves our souls. Right? It, it saves our souls, which will be fully and finally complete on the day when Christ returns. The implanted Word of God, the gospel, will sustain us from beginning to end when our salvation is fully and finally consummated. Again, that is good news. But James doesn't leave it there. He moves on. He moves from humble hearing to active doing. In verse 22, he says, but Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? It's it's one thing to hear and to listen. It's one thing to acknowledge the word as the word of God. It's one thing to profess, to believe in the word. And it's another thing altogether to actually do it. For James, hearing and listening to and studying and memorizing and ruminating on the Word are all very important, but he knew all of that should lead to action. Action should follow all of those things. It should result, the listening and the, the hearing and the listening and the studying and the memorizing should all result in our obedience to it. One commentator said, James is encouraging us to repeated action that becomes a habit. He's reinforcing what I'm sure, for those of you that have been with us, you'll remember what Jesus said in both Luke 6 and Luke 11. Luke 6 is actually was the scripture that you probably read through during our preparation for worship. Right? Jesus said, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, this stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. 
And in chapter 11, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we really shouldn't give James a hard time. Many people want to give James a hard time, but we shouldn't give him a hard time because in the words of one commentator, no one emphasized as strongly as Jesus the need of people touched by God's grace to respond with a radical world-renouncing obedience. Jesus was first on the list for responding. That commentator continued, both the gracious initiative of God and the grateful response of human beings are necessary aspects of the gospel. Which is why James says that those who hear the word and don't do it are actually deceiving themselves. In other words, they think they're believers. They think they're secure, but in actuality, they're not. Those who hear and don't do, they're not as safe as they think. Beloved, it is possible to think you're right with God and not be. And we can illustrate it from the text itself. A person who is a hearer and not a doer would be like a person who consistently listens to the wisdom of the world to the exclusion of the wisdom of God. And so we, would ha- we, we need to ask ourselves this question, to whom do we listen to most? To whom do we listen to most often? A person who's a hearer but not a doer would be like a person who, who likes to be clean and professes to be clean, but is completely comfortable and even enjoys remaining in their filthy clothes. A person who's a hearer but not a doer would be like a person who is not at war with their flesh and is completely comfortable with and even enjoys their sin. And we must ask ourselves in light of that, do you, do do I, do we struggle with our sin? When it comes to our sin, do we ask ourselves in the words of Paul, why do I not do what I want, but do the very thing I hate? A person who's a hearer but not a doer would be like a person who's known for being habitually quick to anger, habitually quick to speak, and habitually slow to listen. And again, we have to ask ourselves, what's our reputation? What's your reputation? And brothers and sisters, in our time, we have to ask ourselves that question, particularly when it comes to our online presence. But the best illustration is what follows in verses 23 to 25. James says, for if anyone is a hearer, of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. 
Um, some people, there are a variety of interpretations of this illustration. Um, some people focus on what the two are looking at, right? The mirror uh, and, the, and the, the perfect law, the law of liberty. Uh, some focus on how they're looking, uh, and they mess around with the words on, you know, did he glance, did he look intently, uh, which is doing which. Uh, there are others that focus on the result of the looking, remembering and forgetting. And then there's some that use a combination of the three. Um, I fall into the category of those uh, who focus on the result of the looking. And it's for one very simple reading, or simple reason, and that is the simple reading. <laughs> um, I agree with Dr. Moo. He says, the more we introduce subtle illusions on the basis of some of the more specific terms in the contrast, the more we're in danger of blunting the overriding emphasis. Right? In other words, we, if we, we get to the point where we're missing just the simplicity that's there, right? Um, I read one, one guy that says, we just need to take it at face value, right? pun intended. So I believe the plain reading emphasizes the results. I mean, I think it fits into the letter, but it fits into Scripture as a whole. Because when you, you go and you look back through Scripture, and we can even think about um, our study in Luke and Hebrews and Leviticus, and you really see this in Exodus. Another, it's just throughout Scripture. We see this repeated emphasis of remembering and not forgetting, right? Or remembering and forgetting. It's remember the Lord your God. Don't forget what He has done. Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. And I encourage you sometimes to, to go back and do a word search. It's fascinating of how often we see that pattern. And so I believe this fits perfectly. The point is, you know, he's, he's focusing on, look, those who, who have heard the word and they forget or just like we look in a mirror and we turn around and we forget what we saw. But when we hear and listen to the word and we do what it says, it's like, you know, we, we look into that perfect law of liberty and we remember who God is. We remember his character. We remember his faithfulness. And we, we're left with doing what it says isn't more beneficial. And that's not to say that in the midst of our trials, you know, looking to the law isn't more beneficial than looking to ourselves. It's, it's obviously better. It's obviously more beneficial. It's actually more, it's beneficial to look at the law in the midst of our, in the midst, look to the word in the midst of our trials than it is to look to ourselves. When we look to ourselves, it's detrimental. So, so I, I understand that, but I think his emphasis is on the remembering versus the forgetting. He's wanting us to ask ourselves, when, when we read the Word and when we hear the Word read, when, when we read it ourselves and when we hear it read, when we hear it taught, when we hear it preached, do we for, then forget what it says or do we remember and do what it says? J. Maltier says this. He writes, I spent 50 minutes this morning reading the Bible and I can remember what I read. It was a super uninterrupted time. The inflection's mine. I'm sorry, I just do that sometimes when I'm reading. I just, I, maybe that's not the way he intended it, but that's just what I, that's what I hear when I read. Right? 
But James would say, well done. But now, what about obeying the word you read? He goes on, have you actually changed your mind so that you now hold to be true what you learned in the word? Have you and are you redirecting your imagination and your eyes and your thoughts so as to live according to the standards of the world? Are your relationships different? As the Word instructed you, they should be. And he could go on, we must be doers of the Word. But we can't miss the subtle change there in verse 25. And by the way, boys and girls, this will be the topic of Thursday in your family worship time, okay? So I'm about to give you the answer. He's moving, he, James has moved from referencing the Word in verse 18 and also in 20 to 21 to referencing the perfect law and the law of liberty. It's a move from general to specific. He's focusing in on the moral law and the Ten Commandments. And he describes it as perfect because it was very common then to describe the moral law as perfect, and it was, um, it was a description he took from Psalm 19, verse 7. But he also, we're unable to law of liberty, and we struggle with that idea of law of liberty because we're unable to resolve the tension between law and freedom. But James was able to do it because as a Christian... He was now looking at the law in light of it having been fulfilled in Christ. James knew that Christ's righteousness or his perfect obedience to the law had been credited to his own personal account. Because he could never do, he could never perfectly obey the law on his own. He needed someone to do that for him. And he knew Christ was that one. He also knew that Christ's death on the cross, which took on the curse of the law, or in which he took on the curse of the law, was not for Christ's own sin, but for the sin of others, including his He knew it was a satisfactory payment of a debt that he himself owed for his failure to keep the law. So in Christ, James knew that in Christ, he had been declared to be someone who not only had been forgiven of his breaking of the law, but he was seen as one who had always kept it perfectly. And as a result, he was now free from the curse of the law, and he was now free to obey it. And therefore, it was a law of liberty. It was no longer burdensome to James. It was a means by which that he could do what God had revealed, right, that was pleasing to him. He knew that the law had done its job, right? It had revealed his sin, but it had pointed him to Christ. And now as a believer, he could look at the law and follow the law and please God out of gratitude for his salvation. 
He didn't feel trapped. He didn't feel weighed down. But like David, he loved it. He meditated on it. And he put it into practice. And he's exhorting his readers. And he's exhorting us tonight to do the same. Out of gratitude for our salvation. And to, get, uh, to help, he gave a few concrete examples at the end here in verses 26 and 27. He said, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Unstained from religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, he's going to elaborate uh, on these topics throughout the rest of the letter. He's going to talk about taming the tongue in chapter 3. He's going to address uh, caring for those in need in the first half of chapter 2 and through chapter 5. And he's going to address worldliness in chapter 4. So I'm not going to take the time tonight to break these down and explain them. We're going to do that over the next few weeks. I'm going to, I want to simply say this. This is not an exhaustive list. In other words, just because we do these three things doesn't mean we've kept the whole law. What he's doing is simply introducing examples of what doing the law looks like. Calvin put it this way, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without these things he mentions is nothing. Okay? These are part of what we're called to do. And in the end, his, his point is this, for those who proclaim to be Christians, for those who profess to be believers, it is possible for us, for our actions to betray us. We are called to practice what we preach and what we hear preached. So here are three questions. And again, we're going we're to flesh these out over the next few weeks, but here are the three questions. Do we imitate the Lord whose word is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb and sweetness to the soul and health to the body? And seek to bridle our tongue in order to speak that which builds up and blesses others. Second question. Do we imitate our Heavenly Father, who is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows? And do we care for those in need like the orphan and the widow? And last question. Do we imitate our God who is holy and altogether other and strive to keep ourselves unstained from the world in order to be holy as He is holy? Brothers and sisters, because we're in Christ, the law is not burdensome. Christ has taken on the curse of the law for us. We do not attempt to fulfill the law in order to gain or earn or merit our salvation. By the way, that's not the first time you've heard that tonight. We've sung it tonight. We've prayed it tonight. We've read it tonight. The call is simple. It is not easy, but it is simple. Obedience, we have, the word has brought us life. 
The Word has been planted, implanted within us. We have listened. We have received it with humility. Therefore, the call is for us to not merely be hearers, but to be doers also. May that be so. Let's pray together. Well, gracious Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the Word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Would you bless those who've heard your Word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for the sake of Christ. Amen.